0: This is a Lodestar Podcast, created by MK & Associates, and your host, Mike King. Our sponsor is Project 44, operator of the world's most trusted end-to-end visibility platform,
1: Hello everybody, I'm Mike King and welcome to this latest podcast in the Stars Big Interview Series. What next for container shipping and ocean supply chains? Well, for those of you who, like me, lack a crystal ball, our interviewee today will hopefully have his in tow. He's a veteran of the liner industry, but also sometimes in his role as possibly the sector's foremost analyst occasionally its harshest critic. He's a veteran executive or board member of, amongst others, Maersk Line, the container ship company, CNTel, Maritime Analysis, and the New York Shipping Exchange. He is a sought-after speaker at events, a go-to commentator for journalists, and a prominent thought leader on social media. He continues to wear a host of hats, but first and foremost, he's the CEO of Vespucci Maritime, Hello, Lars Jensen. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to have you on, Lars, again. Now, there's a lot I want to get through today, including whether we should expect more regulation of our industry, what's happening this peak season, the future of supply chains. Now, the world and the logistics geopolitical landscape look so much different after two years of pandemic and the invasion of Ukraine. But if we may, Let's start in the here and now and examine the macroeconomic situation as we talk in early July 2022. Let me just throw a few things at you to set the scene for our listeners. In China right now, we've growing evidence that manufacturing and new export orders are falling, or maybe I should say slowing. President Xi's strict lockdown policy, amongst other things, has prompted the World Bank to cut its real GDP forecast growth to 4.3% versus a target of 5.5% and growth of 8.1% last year. In the US, Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell has pointed to the possibility of a recession. In Europe, there's almost no economic positivity and war is casting a very long shadow. The IMF has now lowered its global GDP growth forecast for this year and next. And we have these energy and food security and inflation issues, which are threatening to spiral out of control and could very easily lead to social and political unrest in those countries most affected. And that's pretty much all of them. So, Lars, that long question leads me to this. Can you recall a macroeconomic environment this risk-laden for us all, never mind for container shipping? You might be fishing
0: for the answer, no, but yes, I can certainly remember an incident where the macroeconomic outlook was equally risk-laden. That was in spring of 2020, when uh, the pandemic was in its second phase, spread outside of China and shut down the rest of the world. I would say at that point, it was equally risk-laden. But the problem of course, is when we're then trying to fish out the crystal ball economically, what is going to happen ahead of us, there is no good way of making an accurate prediction. This is more about understanding some very different scenarios that are all likely to potentially unfold going forward. So have we seen equal uncertainty before? We definitely did in early 2020. And maybe to raise a warning flag there, In the very early phases, remember when Europe and U.S. shut down, everybody and their grandmother were completely in alignment that this would send the world into a massive recession and consumer spending would drop through the floor. And what then happened? The exact opposite. So it is exceedingly difficult right
1: now to predict with certainty how this is going to pan out. But it sounds like you're veering on the side of optimism, if I may say so, Lars. Let's see how that transpires in terms of container shipping demand. In your view, then, if I may put some numbers to you, we we had a 7.9% growth in global volumes last year, according to Global Trade Analytics Suite. Uh, they're now for, forecasting a, a contraction of 1.7% in 2022. What are you expecting volumes to do this year and next? I'm going to be slightly annoying here
0: and say it depends on what you compare to because there are multiple elements. Usually, all the numbers you see from all the analysts out there, it's a matter of what's the growth in the number of full containers that have been moved compared to last year. But that is flawed for several reasons. First of all, last year was not a normal year, neither was the year before. So we should, in reality, still compare to 2019 to get a sense for the underlying strength. Secondly, It's not enough to measure the number of containers. You need to measure TEU miles to take the distance in. And even more importantly, and this is really the key here, you need to include the number of empty containers that are being moved. Because when we talk about demand, we usually think about full containers because that is the demand for paying cargo. That makes sense. But when you're looking at the strength of the market, you want to measure demand for space on board vessels, and that includes the empties. And what we have seen, especially over the last 18 months, is a dramatic increase in trade imbalances, very, very round numbers. The imbalance on Trans-Pacific has gone from a two to one to a four to one trade imbalance, so the number of empty containers have skyrocketed. If you take the empty containers into the equation, you are still seeing relatively okay growth in container demand when you compare all the way back to 2019, not stellar growth by no means. But growth is stronger than what is suggested if you only
1: look at the full containers. When you take those different metrics for container demand, how do you see that playing out over the rest of this year and uh, maybe into next year in terms of that demand situation, given those macroeconomic factors that we discussed earlier?
0: And, and this is where this scenario comes in, because right now, at this point in time, early July, I see two almost equally likely scenarios unfold. One scenario is that you're going to continue to see relatively okay growth. Relatively okay growth in this context means global growth that might actually still show 0% compared to last year. Last year was a bit odd. It would be growth where you are likely to see, say, 3% to 5% growth on Trans-Pacific, which is the main driver of what we've seen in the last couple of years. That's one scenario. The other scenario, that is if the consumers decide to rein in their spending on goods. In that case, you might very well see a massive drop in container volumes over the coming uh, months, because this would be linked to an inventory restocking. And every time you have inventory changes, that effect hammers through on container shipping very hard. So you could potentially that see a peak season where you're down maybe 10 to 10% on volume over the span of a few months. Those are two extremely different scenarios, and it is right now not possible to say with certainty which one of the two we're faced with.
1: As you say, Lars, there's, uh, there's quite a lot of moving parts at the moment. And, and you know, you mentioned their inventories, and we've also got these problems at port, which have caused some of those imbalances that you refer to. If we can just look to the peak season, if I may, let's just look at some of those moving parts. We've got East Coast port congestion, lack of warehousing, port problems, including space shortages and too many empties in Northern Europe, some strikes. In China, was this expectation that spot freight rates and demand might get a boost as these lockdowns in Shanghai and other parts of China were de-restricted? That hasn't really materialized as much as people were suggesting it would. What happens in this third quarter peak season, or does it depend on these two different scenarios that you've already outlined? It
0: partially depends on the two scenarios, but there's another key here, and that's what's going to happen precisely with the uh, port congestion. The challenge here is port congestion reached an apex in the early part of 2022, where it was absolutely extreme. At that point, it equaled about 14% of global vessel capacity being unavailable because vessels were stuck. The latest numbers just now came out that covered May. And for the first time since June last year, we are now a tad below 10% of the global fleet being unavailable. And whilst that, of course, is a nice improvement compared to where we started the year, here's the rub. We have just been through the traditional low season in the industry. This is where we had the least amount of cargo moving. And the amount of cleanup we were able to do at port congestion has brought us back on par with where we were in peak season last year. So if that's the amount of cleanup we can do in low season, we don't even need a strong peak season ahead of us. We just need Let's call it a normal peak season ahead of us. In that case, port congestion is going to skyrocket in peak season. When port congestion goes up, that de facto removes capacity, and you could very well end up in the same mess that we were in in 2021. So that is clearly one scenario. It doesn't require a strong peak season for that to happen. It just requires a relatively normal peak season. If we had the other scenario where we get an inventory adjustment and you get massive drops in demand from a port congestion perspective, that would be the best thing that could happen because that would lower the amount of volume. It would allow us to clear more of the congestion issues we haven't been able to solve. So a bad recession scenario, the only thing that really has a silver lining is it would allow us to effectively
1: address port congestion. So that's a very low bar for the peak season. Is there anything else out there that could resolve these supply chain bottlenecks? Because that seems to be saying either we'll have low demand now or we have to have at some point in the future before any of this is solved. Yeah, the, the, the problem here is what's it going to take to clear poor congestion? One answer is
0: time. It just takes time because if you've got congestion, you still need to deal with your normal flow. So it's only your excess capacity above normal flow that is really addressed towards reducing congestion. And part of the congestion here is not necessarily down to the ports alone. It's also down to infrastructure constraints in terms of trucks and rail and warehousing and everything else. And the part where there is reason for concern is shortages on the inland capacity side has been part and parcel of the market for almost two years now. It has still not been resolved. One of the issues, definitely not the only one, one of the issues is a lack of trucks. But can you then just not buy more trucks? Well, it's the same thing. If you want to go a car for yourself right now, that is long in demand because we got a shortage of computer chips. Why do we have a shortage of computer chips? Initially, it was the pandemic. Right now, you've got a shortage of neon, which you need to produce computer chips because lo and behold, more than half of the world's production of neon took place in the Ukraine. So that's not going to be restored anytime soon. Adding insult to injury, then... Uh, you also have a shortage to some degree of truck drivers. In Europe, for example, you have changes of cabotage rules, which to some degree has impacted the availability of truck drivers, especially in Northwestern Europe. You have an impact potentially of, you had uh, some truck traffic in Europe that was handled by Ukrainian and Russian truck drivers, mainly in Eastern Europe. They're clearly not present there anymore. So you have a lot of effects here transpiring that one of the core issues, inland capacity, is still not resolved which again does not lend much credence to the hope that we can resolve the congestion in a rapid fashion. And on top of that, of course, as you were mentioning, we have pot strikes. And for me, the irony in this is all eyes for the last 12 months has been on the U.S. West Coast and the expiration of the uh, West Coast agreement with the union, where the big scary risk here was, what if we have another strike on the U.S. West Coast? And sure, that would have devastating effects, But people have then forgotten there are other places in the world than the U.S. West Coast, as we can see now with strikes in Germany, strikes in Belgium, strikes over in the UK on the rail side, which also have ramifications onto the ports and terminals, strikes of truckers in Korea that has ramifications on boards. So on on that front, no, I'm not optimistic for a short-term resolution of a lot of these bottlenecks.
1: Just for our listeners there, when Lars talks about U.S. dock worker negotiations, their existing deal expired on June the 30th and, and talks were ongoing, but previously there's, there's been uh, slowdowns of, of productivity at those U.S. West Coast ports as PMA and ILWU negotiated, which is one of the causes for some of this East Coast port congestion as shippers have diverted cargoes and lines of diverted ships to avoid what everyone was expecting to be a buildup. But we'll see where that goes as July and and the summer progresses. But just turning back to those inland logistics issues you mentioned there, Lars, these are similarities between the US and and Europe, these challenges that we're facing, or do you see these two markets differently in terms of what needs to be done to address that hinterland landscape?
0: There are a lot of similarities. If you look at the US, there is a peculiarity over there, and that's the whole situation about how chassis are owned, operated, and maintained in the US. That's an added complication that is very much US-specific. That we don't see anywhere else. And again, this is a mess that does not have one reason. It's a multitude of different uh, traffic jams at the same time. When it comes to the chassis, I was going regularly also to intermodal conferences in the US prior to the pandemic. And for years prior to the pandemic, one of the issues that were constantly raised was a fear of a chassis shortage. So this was a pre existing problem, of course, now just being massively amplified. And again, just to illustrate, The complexity of this, these chassis are produced predominantly in China as part of the Trump trade war with China. There was an import tariff placed on the the chassis that were already in short supply. The Biden administration in 2021 then further increased the import tariffs on these chassis in a situation of acute shortages. So you've got a multitude of these different elements just piling on top of each other. If you took any single element alone, that would be addressable we now have a mess with a whole pot of different reasons that are all intermingled, making this quite difficult to solve in the short term. I know everybody would like to see a short-term resolution. You can clearly see, especially in the US, a political desire to kind of show we are going to do something effective about it, but this is not something you can solve short term, not with the mess we're in now. And in Europe? In Europe, I would tend to say it might be slightly, slightly different. Part of the problem is also that that's what we haven't touched upon either. Even if you have the most efficient container terminal in the world, for every container terminal, the reality is once you become chock-a-block full, your efficiency declines rapidly. It's basically the same as suddenly you have to work with a straight jacket on and then you're caught in a catch-22. Then your efficiency drops, you become even more full. And then how are you going to work your way out of it? That's part of the problem too. So it's not in Europe that we don't have efficient terminals. We actually have very efficient terminals, but when they become too full, then they can't operate. And then you set into motion again, a cascading of events we've seen over the last few years where a terminal might then say, well, we are chock-a-block full. So what are we going to do? We are going to restrict how early are you allowed to, for example, gate in export containers. From a terminal perspective. That makes all the sense in the world. That will clear up some space. But that would then mean the moment you say that, you would already have quite a number of containers en route on trucks that can no longer be gated in. Then the trucks will have to wait. Now you're effectively reducing the amount of trucking capacity available. So you're simply shifting one problem
1: from one place to another place. That leads me quite nicely into the next subject I wanted to broach with you on this Lodestar big interview, laws. It's the relationship between carriers and their customers, which I think we can fairly say has somewhat deteriorated over the past two years. Just for some context for our listeners, we've had many years of shippers shopping around for the cheapest prices and lines struggling to make money. Now we've had two years where the boot has been on the other foot and we've had these record freight rates, which I think we can say has added to global inflation to some degree. Just looking at those spot contract markets where long-term prices on some trades are currently surpassing spot pricing. If that continues, will these contracts be honored? And if they're not, where does this leave container line revenue and profit projections and plans, which in many cases are factoring in these long-term contracts?
0: Yeah, there are multiple levels to this. First of all, let's be clear that this uh, game of cat and mouse, whether it's one party or the other party, suddenly not living up to contracts, that has been part and parcel of container shipping for decades. Every time we have a strong market, you would have carriers saying, now we have firm contracts and they will stick. And when the market went down, it hasn't. Every time the market really hits rock bottom spot rates, you have a large amount of shippers that renege on their deals with the carriers. This is a two-way street. I don't think either party can blame the other because they're doing it themselves. And you could, of course, at all points in time say this time is different. And that's also what the carriers are saying now, this time is different. It's just, we've heard that argument before kind of, right? So what I think is going to transpire here, as you correctly put it, the latest data certainly do indicate that now we're beginning to see spot rates dip below some of the long-term contract rates. For now in the market, I'm not seeing that lead to any changes for now. I see this as a risk management accession on the part of shippers. We still don't know. If you suddenly get this strong peak season and shortage of capacity a month from now, the reason why shippers have entered into these high-priced long-term contracts is to safeguard their access to capacity. You don't want to rock that boat right now. You still don't know whether you're going to need it. But if it then becomes clear over the coming weeks and months that we don't get that tightness and rates will continue down, then you will see a large amount of these contracts be renegotiated. You had, uh, I actually think that was pretty interesting from Norwegian Sinita a couple of weeks ago. They had asked a lot of the shippers that provide them with data. They'd also asked them, if the spot rates continue to decline, will you stick to contract? Will you renegotiate contract? Or will you just re on contract? And now it just strikes me, I can't remember the precise number, but I believe it was something like 10 to 20% that said they were gonna to stick to contract. The rest, they were either gonna renegotiate or renegotiate on contract. I don't find that number surprising at all. So does that mean that the carriers would be put under pressure to some degree? But here's another thing we need to keep in mind. This is a Lodestar Podcast created by MK and & Associates, and your host, Mike King. Our sponsor is Project 44, operator of the world's most trusted end-to-end visibility platform, which tracks more than one billion shipments annually for over 1,000 of the leading brands, including top companies in manufacturing, automotive, retail, life sciences, food and beverage, and oil, chemical, and gas. Using Project 44, shippers and carriers across the globe drive greater predictability Resiliency and sustainability. Nobody should be under the illusion that if freight rates start to drop rapidly, that they will come down to anything normal anytime soon. I did a, a small model, that's more than half a year ago now, where I asked myself the question, if rates truly go into freefall, how long will it be before we're back to something that looks normal? And then we have to define what does freefall mean, I went to the only rate index we have that's been in existence for a long period of time. That's the Chinese CCFI. It's been in existence since 1998 with daily data. So from 1998 until now, we had five periods where rates were genuinely in free fall over a long period of time. The two worst declines, one was during the financial crisis when the market collapsed. The other one was 2015-16 when you had the worst price war the carriers had ever waged. Rates were really in free fall there. And then I looked at how quickly do the rates then fall in percentage terms. Both of these were equally severe. Let's say we now get into the same kind of free fall. It could still take a year before you are back to normal freight rates, even if rates are in free fall. So make no mistake, rates can certainly start to deteriorate rapidly, but you're gonna be way into 2023 before
1: you had the earliest hope of something that looks like normal. I take your point on that, Lars. That Zenita survey was very interesting. 82% of respondents said that they either wouldn't honor their existing contract or would renegotiate it, which is a a substantial amount. But just back to that uh, shipper-liner relationship, the shippers' complaints have not just been about pricing, it's also service. Most of the last two years, we've had awful schedule reliability, lack of boxes, lack of information, lack of customer service. I mean, as you've already mentioned there, you were talking about the port, there has been these mitigating circumstances, but do you think that lines could have performed better in managing all of this, or, or could they be doing better right now? You would say that the problem
0: here is what does doing better actually mean? Given the circumstances, I don't see the carriers who could have done anything different. One thing I like to look at, again, if we look at it counterfactually, what could the carriers have done? All the way back in early summer last year, I was looking at the carriers' planned capacity injections on the Trans-Pacific because it was clear the Trans-Pacific all was booming. So there was a massive injection of capacity. And already there, I was saying, look, this is going to lead to a massive bottleneck problem. There is no way this armada of ships can be handled. So what should the carriers have done Should they put in more capacity, which is what they did because the shippers were screaming bloody murder that they needed more capacity, or what the carriers, of course, could have done is they could have at that point said, no, we will not insert more capacity. That way, we can maintain schedule integrity. We will arrive on time, but we are going to leave a million containers behind. So you would have had a much more severe capacity shortage. That is what the carriers could otherwise have done. Now, again, counterfactually, I would have a very sneaky suspicion that if the carriers had curbed capacity to make sure they could live a good service, freight rates would not have peaked at twenty to 30,000. They would have peaked even higher. And the carriers would be under even more allegations for colluding to artificially keep capacity low. So from a carrier perspective, these two years has been a no-win situation. Either you put in as much capacity as you can, and they definitely have every conceivable vessel that can sail, has been sailing for two years. You can also see it on scrapping. Over two years, there's been a grand total of six container ships that have been scrapped. That's virtually nothing. So all capacity has been thrown in, but the price for that is the congestion, the waiting lines, and you simply cannot win on that equation.
1: So based on that then, I mean, talking about deliveries or new building deliveries is quite a blunt instrument because obviously so much depends on, on how those ships are deployed and on scrapping levels. But let's just take your two scenarios at the beginning. One is that demand and and congestion and disruption remain, and we don't see this. And the other is we have a big fall off in demand. Looking at those two scenarios, what do those new build deliveries in 2023 do to the container market in your view? Uh, If you have the scenario where we continue to have extreme problems
0: with port congestion, new vessels are not really going to help anything. That just means the lines of vessels are going to grow longer. So, the root cause is we need to solve the congestion problems inland and in terminals. Now, if we do get that one solved, what this also means is we're going to go into a normal cyclical downturn. We are going to get more capacity injected than we're going to need. It it really is as simple as that. Again, that's not unusual. That's the normal cyclicality, but there is a catch. There is an aberration that's going to happen in 23, 24 we have not seen before. Most of the vessels being delivered, they are big vessels. But we also get new environmental rules under IMO 2023, which addresses fuel efficiency of the individual vessel. Large vessels tend to be new vessels. They're fuel efficient. They'll do kind of okay. Small vessels are not fuel efficient. They will not do okay. So in all likelihood, we are faced with a scenario where we'll get plenty of capacity in the big vessel segments. We might still have shortages in the small vessel segment. So if you are shipping from Shanghai to Rotterdam, that's great, you're golden, there'll be plenty of capacity. If you're shipping from Manila to Oslo, you might still have a problem because you need that feeder from Manila to Hong Kong. You need that feeder from Rotterdam up to Oslo. So you're gonna get this bifurcation in the market between major deep-sea port connectivity with plenty of capacity and outport regional feeder connectivity.
1: That might still be under capacity pressure until 25 or 26. Just thinking about that regulatory environment, a different bit of regulation, I guess we'd call it. President Joe Biden has midterms on the horizon this November, a rather radical, I'll use that word, Supreme Court to deal with, not to mention a war that threatens NATO. So you'd think he might have enough on his plate, but he's been very outspoken uh, against container lines. Uh, He's passed the Ocean Shipping Reform Act and beefed up the powers of the Federal Maritime Commission. What's your take on U.S. regulatory intervention or intervention by other regulators? Is any of this positive? Do you expect more to come? Maybe more politics driven or maybe more in the U.S. courts?
0: There's a couple of layers here that are important. Uh, Let's take the Ocean Shipping Reform Act factually first. It addresses a number of issues that were very high on the shippers agenda and especially on the uh, U.S. agricultural exporters agenda. So now it takes into account that as a carrier, you can't say no basically to take x4 cargo. There's still a six to 12 month period ahead of us where this has to be detailed in law before it actually effectively becomes available, but it, it addresses that part. It addresses concerns over detention and emerge practices. Whether it's going to replace one problem with another or one discussion with another remains to be seen. It gives more powers to the FMC in order to make sure they can enforce existing regulation. Now, if you believe the carriers have not done anything illegal, then of course, that's not going to change anything in itself. So, So, the most important things this one addresses is detention, demurrage, and export access to capacity. But that has absolutely nothing to do with the political agenda now being set by the president. The political agenda is very much centered around the extremely high freight rate increases. And sure, for some, freight rates have increased. Now, mind you. Whilst you potentially can find someone who have seen this 1,000% rate increase the president is talking about, you probably can. You can also find some who might have seen only 100% freight rate increase, depending on who you look at and what time frame you're looking at. So it's an extremely wide band. And those price increases, there's nothing about that to be regulated in the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, absolutely nothing at all. The other thing that's being at least implied by the political rhetoric is The rate increases are due to the high level of concentration in the market, in this case, being singled out by how few carriers are available, say, in the Trans Pacific. Now, not only are those numbers factually incorrect, that's being put out, that's what it is. But the Federal Maritime Commission, presumably the president's own agency, made a fact finding study over a year, came with the conclusions just a few weeks ago that were extremely clear that there were no signs that the level of concentration had anything to do with the Q and rates. They stated quite literally that there was vigorous competition. So there is a complete disconnect here between the political rhetoric and what is in the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. They, those two are not linked. That brings me to your other question. Will we see more regulatory? I think that's a bit of a toss up. My personal opinion here, it appears that the president is out to score cheap political points leading up to the midterm. And by alluding to the Ocean Shipping Reform Act doing something about what is a visible problem, that's an easy political point if people don't know there's no link between the two. If this persists, however, the political spectrum might then turn up and say then we need another adjustment to the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. Then we need price controls or we need to start a US built and funded state supported ocean carrier whatever what other scenarios you could come up with that would in this case clearly be a political agenda that would have major ramifications on the shipping supply chain but for now i think the baseline assumption should be this is political posturing leading up to the midterm elections showing one problem and are implying that a specific law does something about that problem even though it doesn't
1: yeah i love your analysis there lars of that divergence between rhetoric and policy we we see this a lot in the uk on brexit and on immigration, in fact, just turning back to the reason why the lines are a target. It's a lot down to these massive profits and these high freight rates that they've, they've racked up. Let's just look at the strategy of these carriers. We've seen quite divergent strategies in terms of how they've invested these windfalls. Do you think they're investing wisely or coherently?
0: No, nothing coherently would be the right word. They're investing differently because, as you're correctly pointing out, they now have different uh, strategies. When we started out the pandemic, the carriers were all, to some degree, barreling down more or less the same path. Most of the CMA with slight aberrations there, but now you're really seeing the carriers diverge in quite a number of different directions. The enormous amount of profits here of 21 and 22 of course, is giving them the breathing space to really not only choose what strategy they want to pursue, but put the money where the amounts are. And that's what they're doing. They have all been out, not all, but most of them have been out ordering enormous amounts of ships. Some of them are bearing down the path of putting more money on either complete green ships or at least dual fuel ships so they are capable of being green. That is one agenda that is now being ramped up simply because the money is there. You are seeing carriers, and I would expect to see that a lot more over the next year, making a lot of logistics acquisitions, especially the ones that are proceeding down the path of logistics. So it has given the carriers the opportunity to pursue some of these strategies. Absolutely. I still think the carriers have the (laughs) pretty interesting problem that they have more money than they can actually spend right now. So the problem is, what do you then do? Do you send the money back to the shareholders? Or do you have interim investments making the money still relatively accessible? Or what do you do? Timing-wise, if you're looking at it from a green agenda, timing is not optimal. Because the maturity of the green technology to have purely decarbonized ships is not quite mature yet. We don't have the fuel yet. So even if you wanted to build green ships, you couldn't get the fuel yet. That's a shame because if those two components were in place, you would have seen an extreme acceleration of the decarbonization because the money is there. But it doesn't make sense to do right now because you don't have all the components in place, unfortunately.
1: Lars, you mentioned the timing in terms of green investments, but let's just look at this deteriorating economic environment in terms of if you're a liner executive and you're looking at further investments in the supply chain. As stock prices fall, is this something of a target-rich environment? no i
0: wouldn't necessarily say that because even though overall stock prices are down i am not sure especially if you go for attractive logistics companies that they are down by all that much i mean again we're in a situation not just for container shipping but for logistics overall where you do have capacity shortages let's let's remember it's not just the carriers being wildly profitable these years logistics companies are also making a killing these years so are ports and terminals companies So everybody involved in the supply chain. Now, let me rephrase that. If you are in the supply chain sector and you are not making a killing right now, you will certainly not stick around for the long haul because there's shortages all through. So that would also mean if you go out and buy now and the market then normalizes, you might have found yourself to be buying still at the height of the market. What you have to ask yourself, if you are a carrier on a buying spree, do I want to either risk buying at too high a price or do I want to forego the opportunity, but somebody else might buy my target? And there's not that many attractive targets out there. So it's a matter of do you want it or don't you want it?
1: Lars, we've covered on this podcast previously, some of these liner of strategies, immerse transformation. And it strikes me that certainly that particular plan was drawn up a number of years ago. These investments are predicated to some degree, at least, on a world picture that has changed drastically since they were drawn up. We spoke last year and we talked about nearshoring and reshoring. And your view was that ultimately most of those types of strategies would fail because in most sectors, it's simply too hard for a company with a more resilient supply chain to compete with one that has a more efficient or cheaper supply chain. Now, since then, as we've mentioned, we've got war in Europe and and that has really changed how many analysts view the future of globalization and supply chain security. It's not simply now about cost and resilience, they say. It's about shared values and national or regional security. And people are worried, for example, you know, what happens if China becomes embroiled in a conflict that drags the West in? So, have you changed your views in the sort of nine months since we last spoke on deglobalization or re regionalization at all?
0: Not to a significant degree, no. I, I still hold more or less the same views. One thing that I see is now going to change over the coming years, and that's really only a change that's happened here in 2022. Uh, you are going to see a significant exodus of manufacturing out of China. Most likely, it's going to move to other places across Asia. Uh, the reason you're going to see an exodus out of China is a consequence of first the shutdowns in Shenzhen in early 22, and then the Shanghai shutdowns here in spring of 22. Because to a lot of importers, this is probably the point that the Chinese government, their top priority, is no longer necessarily financial performance. In this case, it's the zero tolerance policy, and that of course raises the question: What's the next? political priority for the Chinese that might then supersede. So from a risk management perspective, this is not going to happen overnight, but what's going to happen is the next time somebody is pondering, we should build a new factory. Should we build it in China or should we build it elsewhere? The scales are going to tip more towards elsewhere. The next time you have a manufacturing contract expire with a supplier in China, more are going to ask themselves, maybe we should diversify this one. At the end of the day, this is still going to come down to cost, and cost is a combination of the manufacturing cost and the supply chain. Ultimately, the supply chain will work itself out. So you're again down to manufacturing costs. My expectation is that you would see, at least I would say any government, especially out in Asia that knows what's good for their own economy, they should be out now marketing themselves as attractive locations. I would expect to see a resurgence of Infrastructure and port projects uh, throughout Asia to attract manufacturing that moves out of China uh, going forward. I'm not saying everybody will move out of China. Again, the world is not black and white, but you would see a reduction on the reliance of China and move it to other places to have a more resilient and robust supply chain.
1: And how will this affect liner strategy in the future?
0: No, I mean for now, every carrier out there can therefore still justify also the strategies they that, that they have because this means. You can either argue this is exactly why you should do more into logistics because the logistics supply chain might become even more diverse. This could also barrel you down the path of saying, this is why we should have a low cost supply chain because people will still want to manufacture and have low transportation costs. You can go down the path of also arguing this is why we should build more ships because volumes are going to grow, not necessarily on say an Asia, Europe or Trans-Pacific, but if you have this exodus out of China, this might lead to growth in volumes in
1: intra-Asia, for example. And finally, Lars, thanks so much for your time today. How's things with you? Are you enjoying getting back to conferences and face-to-face meetings? Have you got anything coming up? What's next for Lars Jensen?
0: No, I have, I have very much been enjoying over the last six months uh, being able to come out physically to meet with people again. And, and, and there is just a different energy. It's different topics that you talk about when you meet physically. So, so that has definitely been been a good thing. And yes, I do have a lot of additional events and conferences that I'm going to hear uh, over the over the second half. So at least for now, I'm going to be out and about at least both in Europe and the Middle East and North America and South America and the Caribbean for now.
1: So, so you're definitely keeping busy then? Yes. Well, thank you for your time today and coming on the Lodestar pod, podcast. It's been a, a pleasure, Lars Jensen. Thank you. My pleasure. I'd like to thank my editing team, the amazing Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. Big thanks also to our sponsors, Project 44. And gratitude to you all, of course, for taking the time to listen. We'll be back soon.